Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Sam Cohn was born and raised in suburban Detroit. Her fiction is published in Fence, Bomb, Diagram, and Gulf Coast, among others. She is the recipient of a McDowell Fellowship and a PhD Fellow at the University of Southern California. Sam Cohen lives in Los Angeles. And she is joined uh, tonight in conversation with Nikki Darling, who is a writer, artist, and performer based in Los Angeles. She received her MFA from Cal Arts and is a PhD candidate in USC's Literature and Creative Writing Program. Her debut novel, Fade Into You, was published on Feminist Press in 2018, which you can also get through the Skylight website. Now, Sam will read from her new book, Sarah Land. Uh, here we go. Welcome, welcome, Sam. Boop, boop, boop. All right. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for being here with me. Um, this is not how I imagined launching my first book, but it is really amazing to see all of your names popping up in the little chat bar. And it's really amazing to see the names of people who I know couldn't be here if we were in LA. And I'm just gonna read from the first first pages of the book um, from the title story, Sarah Land. You've read the story, but there's no forest here, no wolf, no subterfuge is necessary. The boys are everywhere, out in the open, an infestation. Like cockroaches, they're most visible at night. We stiletto them in the bellies and elbow them aside to clear a path down the hallway. We roll our eyes at their begging or pout and wag our fingers. We invite them in or pretend later we invited them in or slam the door in their faces or slam their fingers in the door. We grab one by the hand and continue down the hallway because he's cute or because we wanna fend off other boys or because we wanna make someone jealous. We pretend to be angry at them, or we pretend to like them, or we feel angry, or we like them. We have time to kill, so we're watching a movie. The movie is Heather's. We're in sweats with the school's initials on our butts, and Sarah A is eating broccoli that was once frozen, but is now microwaved with yellow, I can't believe it's not butter spray pooled in its florets. Last quarter, Sarah A was bent on gaining the freshman 15, dousing her cafeteria froyo in chocolate syrup and gummy worms, ordering 3 a.m. pizza and saying, eat girls. College was supposed to be fun and the freshman 15 was proof you were having it. This quarter though, Sarah A was poking at the slight curve of her belly above her low rise jeans and proclaiming, I'm obese. 
In this new phase, Sarah A's room smelled perpetually of microwaved broccoli and febrezed over farts. It is a time when I have, without trying, fallen into a group of Sarahs. Sarah A, Sarah B, plus me. I'm also a Sarah A, but no one calls me that. They call me Dr. Sarah, kind of mocking my pre-med major. Are you serious? You're so pretty, said the real Sarah A when we first met in line at the frozen yogurt machine in the cafeteria. You really don't need to do all that work. Sarah A was always very certain about what you did or didn't need to do. But after she said it, I looked around in chem class and saw that, yeah, I was prettier than everyone. We're just here for our MRS degrees, Sarah B spun around and added. Sarah's A and B were both five foot zero and bird boned with dark hair. Sarah A's was glossy and long and Sarah B's was poofy and pyramid shaped. Next to them, I was a giant, four inches taller, salon blonde and obvious nose job. Ambition's attractive to guys though, Sarah B said. You have to show them you're not like other girls or whatever. She popped her lip, pocketed her gloss and pulled the Froyo lever. I'm gonna be pre-law until I get engaged. I'll go to law school if I have to, but hopefully I'll never have to practice. It was a weird plan. So weird I wondered if Sarah B was lying. Like, was she stating her deepest fear as her goal so it would feel like success when it came true? My own secret plan was to be pre-med until I could figure out how to be one of those ocean scientists who spends a bunch of their time swimming naked in a pack of dolphins. It seemed like the beginning was the same. Introductory bio, ochem, et cetera. And then somewhere a secret level unlocked and you underwent a series of quests you didn't know about yet. And boom, dolphins. We lived in a privately owned off-campus dormitory where 90% of the girls were named Sarah or else Rachel, Alyssa, Jamie, Becky, Becca, Carrie, Ilana, or Jen. The other 10% were named Barry, Shira, and Ariel. The whole dorm was Jewish. I never understood how these things happened. Nowhere in any of the dorm's advertising materials which had succeeded in making me so excited to live with no parents in a building of studious 18-year-olds with a frozen yogurt machine did it say the word Jewish but it seemed wherever I went in my life, everyone was Jews. While I might think that I was moving around freely in the world, making independent choices, it was though a secret groove had been carved and some invisible bumpers were gonna push me gently back into that groove, the Jew groove, Sarah land. And Sarah land would trick me and trick me into thinking it was the entire world. It was confounding when I learned Jews were only 3% of the country because where was everybody else? We're like Heathers, but Sarah, Sarah B says. Sarah's are just Jewish Heathers, says Sarah A, touching up her manicure with a stroke of light pink. Sasha's totally the Winona Ryder character, Sarah A loud whispers. Sasha's phone rings a few minutes later and she springs out of bed and cups her hand over the mouth part as she sidles into the bathroom. Sasha is Sarah A's roommate. She wears black leggings and tank tops. And when we're there at 10 p.m. flat ironing and measuring shots of vodka into our cranberry juice or back in the room at 3 a.m. holding each other's hair back for puking and or eating baked ziti pizza, Sasha's locked in the bathroom on the phone with her boyfriend who goes to some other school in some other state. Her eyes are always puffy around the bottom, but she's skinny with naturally straight black hair and she doesn't seem to give a shit about us or what happens during our nights out. And this makes her glamorous. I'm stuck in a horde of Sarah's, but Sasha's on her own, crying alone in the bathroom or smoking alone on the dormitory's front stoop like someone's divorced mom. I wanna be Winona Ryder, I say. You're so weird, Dr. Sarah, says Sarah B. The Heathers are who's cool in this movie, says Sarah A. 
Winona Ryder is demented. She is friends with the fat girl in the end. It isn't the right way to even watch the movie, I was pretty sure. You're supposed to wanna be Winona Ryder, attached to a cool boy in a leather jacket who shoots up princesses and jocks and thereby shoots up culture itself. There seem to be only two options in Heather's and probably other, um, probably everywhere. Either you're attached to a group of girls and obsessed with diets and clothes, or you're attached to a boy and obsessed with freedom and killing people. Sasha seems to be breaking the rules. She's attached to a boy, I guess, but an absent boy, a phone boy. I'm unsure, I'm feeling unsure about my own level of pleasure being subsumed into a Sarah horde, but I'm also unsure how to extricate myself, where I would even go. My own roommate, Shira, clearly wants a bestie with whom to flat iron while trying on clothes and taking vodka shots, but she's desperate, and therefore a worse version of the thing I already have. The Sarahs at least have an ease with which they flat iron and match shoes to outfits and take vodka shots, and when something comes easily, you can shrug it off like you barely even want it, and then you're more or less cool at least. I ended up in this group partly because my best camp friend, Ayala, was best friends with Sarah B in high school. Every time I look at Sarah B, I remember how Ayala and I swore to each other that camp was the only time place that counted as real life. How we promised ourselves that our real selves would hibernate for 10 months and only reemerge upon entry next summer into the North Woods. We held each other each August in the Minneapolis airport like a couple about to be separated by war and wept. Sarah B, I'm realizing as I watch her smash her eyelashes between those medieval looking metal clampers is only best friends with a Yellet's non-camp self, her imposter self, the shell of a Yellet. But now I'm stuck. Sarah B invited me along on an early Bed Bath & Beyond trip based on our mutual Yellet friendship and later invited me to sit with the Sarahs. And soon Sarah A made a laminated chart of all our schedules so that we could only walk to and from class in a group. And suddenly without getting to decide, I was a Sarah. <coughs> hi, Nikki. Oh my goodness, Sam. Hi. Hi. Congratulations on your big publishing day. This is amazing. That was incredible. For everyone who's not read the book, I'm sure that's a lot of you. Read it because it's incredible and it's brilliant and it's funny. So, I just wanted to say that and also um, take a few snaps and also incredibly moving. Uh, so yeah, you gave me a you gave me some permission to go into our origin story. So I just want to say very quickly, we've been friends for 10 years, right? 10, 12 years since 2008. And um, we met at KellArts and uh, yeah, anything you want to say about that before I, well, we, we walked in the river and we talked about God and go for it. I'm anything? laughing at your math because, yeah, because you said 2008 and also 10 years. Um, <laughs> 13 years, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, we met at CalArts. I think, we, yeah, our friendship was cemented walking in the Arroyo and somehow talking about God. And what I really want to say is I'm really happy to be here with you, Nikki, and that if you read and like this book, you should be happy that Nikki Darling came over and yelled at me so many times and was like, Sammy, those Sarahs are going to be a book. They're gonna be a book. Other people were like really gently supportive, but Nikki was very ferociously supportive. And it was basically Aww. like, I, I didn't have to like develop the self-esteem because I just had Nikki like yelling my self-esteem at me. 
Oh, thank you. That's fair. Well, you know, you've helped me so much too in my own writing and you've really celebrated. We, I feel like it's really an honor to be here with you tonight because um, we've, we've been on this journey together and we both, uh, I remember talking about a day when we would have books and now we both do so, okay, with, oh, thank, without further ado, I would like to jump into the book. So um, one of the things that I love about reading and life is that there are overlaps and it's serendipitous. So I just happened to be teaching a coming of age uh, class. My students are here. They're all here. Hello. And um, one of my students left a comment, Chica, she's incredible. You would love her. So um, one of the things that I had them reading was Cruising Utopia, chapter two from Cruising Utopia by Jose Munoz. And um, then I came to that that section in the book in um, Gemstones where Manny uses the quote from Jose. Oh yes, we forgot to say that we were gonna preface this event by dedicating it, right, to Britney Spears and Jose Munoz. Remember this? I thought that they were just kind of like our spiritual informants. I didn't oh. know we were going to publicly dedicate oh. it, but I'm happy to do so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a lot of theoretical conversations in our free time. We're big nerds. But um, so one of the things that I wanted to talk about with the book that I loved was this idea of becoming. And um, I brought up my students because I was teaching that chapter in, uh, from Christine Utopia. And when I got to the chapter, or gem, the short story Gemstones, it was exciting because I was like, I'm literally teaching this. So I just wanted to read a quick quote from the chapter two of... Um, of the of the you know, that I was talking about from Cruising Utopia and um, relate it back to my question, which is so this is Jose Munoz discussing um, these photographs by this photographer. Um, his last name is Just, and um, yeah, he says memory is most certainly constructed, and more important. Hold on, let me put my old lady spectacles on. Memory is most certainly constructed, and more important, always political. The case I make in this chapter posits our, our remembrances and their ritualized tellings through film, video, performance, writing, and visual culture as having world-making potentialities. Furthermore, I suggest that these queer memories of utopia and the longing that structures them, especially as they are embodied in work that I identify as public sex mimetic cultural production, help us carve out a space for actual living, living sexual citizen citizenship for actual living sexual citizenship, which I think was maybe like the Rosetta Stone or the crux of that book, right, was, well, we don't have to get a whole conversation about that book, but basically I wanted to relate it back to this book because so much of this book is about becoming, like in the in the short story, Naked Furniture, where she falls down the chute into the apartment and she's suddenly this other person, but then she gets this job, you know, and in the, in the working as a sex worker and, you know, she becomes like the, the dead girl to the becoming trees to um, becoming the different, all the teenage Sarahs. And I was just wondering what you kind of thought about that in terms of searching for a utopia within the self, if that was something you were thinking about and utopia through queer identity and also in terms of becoming and just let you riff on that. I love you. Okay. That was a lot. I I can try to talk to what I think you're saying. With, I know you can, and you will. <laughs> there's so much so much theory. Um, yeah, I think that this is very much a book about becoming, and it's a book about yeah, a Sarah who, as we all kind of heard, has very limited options for becoming. Right? There's um, people around who are going to kind of corral her into this groove, into spreadsheets, into a very particular 
type of femininity into, um, you know, later the girls say that they're all there to get their MRS degrees, right? And that's what they think that Sarah should be doing too. The narrator, Sarah, they're all Sarah. Um, and yeah, that she shouldn't be pre-med. She should be, you know, aiming at wifehood. And this is sort of the path that everyone is trying to box her into. And so once she sort of departs from that, there is a lot of um, almost obliteration of the previous Sarah from the previous story before she begins a new and a new context in a new story. And in each new story, there are sort of some threads and some part of the consciousness of the previous Sarah, but that Sarah has almost had to be completely wiped out for the next iteration of Sarah to exist. And actually, if we're gonna get like academic and talk about theory, um, I am thinking about Catherine Bond Stockton, the queer child book. I don't, I don't remember what it's called, but um, Growing Sideways. But she has a line in there that's like, for in order for the queer person to come out, the straight adult has to die um, in order for the queer child to be reborn. And so I think this is sort of a book about a lot of different sort of deaths and rebirths of different iterations of self. Does that feel like what your question? That's exactly what I was what what I was asking, and it and it segues nicely into my next question, which is rituals and socialization. So so much, and oh, also I just want to say one of my favorite books that I oh, one of my favorite stories from the book that reminded me of becoming was of course, um, uh, exorcism or it might have been right. Like I can mm -hmm. I'm not attached to my identity. I love when she's like I'm not overly attached to my identity. I could be butch, and then she like gets out her little her little chapstick and she's like, no, I can never be Butch. By the way, this chapstick was given to me by Ann Friedman, who's an amazing friend, and it's dead stock Dr. Pepper. So I just wanted to shout out. I was going to ask did Ann Friedman time travel to get that lip smacker. Yeah, Dr. <laughs> it's dead stock. It's like almost dead. I'm so sad about it. But um, yeah, so uh, again, so rituals and socialization, I think, go hand in hand right with death and rebirth. And one of the ways that I thought the book was so powerful was in this idea of origin stories, right? And sort of what you do in your book is you you reimagine origin stories like in the first Sarah and then similarly in um, gossip, right? Like this idea that storytelling is becoming and then we inhabit these becomings and then we're socialized into this world, right? So I was wondering, um, and of course, yeah, with the, with the, with the fantasy palace, I'm so sorry, dream palace, right, where she knows exactly where she wants to go. And I was wondering um, if you could talk a little bit to the idea of rituals in the book, from like them getting dressed together, to the idea of twinning, to... Um, Nikki, Nikki, I'm gonna stop you and, and have you pick a topic. So we're gonna go origin stories, rituals, or twinning. Let's do rituals, and then origin stories, and then twinning. I feel like they're all the same subject. But are there not the same for me what do you mean by rituals where are the rituals okay well the rituals like when they're getting dressed with the tube tops and how they do their hair like in the first beginning story to like when the girls are in naked furniture like how <clears throat> they all look and like in the windows and sort of like how they sort of perform like for the passers-by or um you know the idea of um like the sarah's like putting on the different identities like these sort of ritualized like mm. like movements into sort of like inhabiting identity. Yeah, I can speak to that. So, I mean, I think that with, 
with those first two early stories, right, and the Sarahs who are a little bit more like hemmed in by their milieus, by their societies, by the people around them, whatever, um, there is this sort of group becoming, right? Like we're um, all gonna get ready together and make sure that we're all doing it right, that we're all presenting the same, that we're all kind of presenting correctly. Um, and I think that after leaving those two stories, some of the other things that you're describing as rituals, like there are Sarahs who become different celebrity Sarahs. Um, that sounds crazy. I don't know how else to describe it without reading the book. Um, the uh, This mall photo booth kind of machine. Um, and I think later the characters start to play with sort of different presentations and different iterations of self that are based on like something in the culture that are based on a film that are based on um, something that they've seen probably. Um, but they're much freer with letting themselves become on their own. And I think I'm realizing as I say this, that I think that the sort of physical is a, is a part of the book too, how the characters look, how they're presenting. Yeah, I felt that for sure, because they go through transformations, right? I mean, so much of the book, like you said, is about rebirth and death and then re-becoming and, and everything from how, like, she looks in the mirror and she feels sexy for the first time after, like, exercise, might, you know, like, and I get this haircut and so much of it is about, like, yeah, trying on identities and trying to find the one that feels the most right. And, like, that scene in All the Teenage Stars with the Horse, which is so beautiful and actually brought me to tears where... I was gonna cry, it's so pretty. Um, you know, with the horse where she's like, I'll be right back. Anyway, I was like, oh, it's so beautiful. I actually, <laughs> it's so good. Um, I'm just moved by it. Um, yeah, where she's like, to me, that was like a moment where like she was like found a home, you know, like in herself. And um, I didn't mean to, I did not spoil the book, don't worry. The final story, which I will not talk about, is so epic. Um, but yeah, like the finding of the home or the self. And that felt like, um, wow, okay, sorry. I'm like so moved by your book, it's really beautiful. That story really got me. But um, yes, this idea that, um, okay, let's just do socialization. Sorry, <laughs> I totally got thrown off there. Yeah, so socialization in, in the book is also a big factor. Um, I think we talked about that. You actually kind of brought that up a little bit with the triangle. Let's talk about the origin stories that you brought yeah, up. Yeah. I'm a yeah. little I'm sorry, I didn't mean to get no, I'll, I'll take over my, my Q&A. <laughs> At Lauren. Orange well, stories, yes. Because I do think that the Rosetta Well, oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Say what you're going to say. I was going to say, I do think that the... I kind of got my footing. Sorry there. I was like, ooh, this got me off guard. Um, I think that for me personally, in my understanding or my reading of the book, was that um the origin story of the the first Sarah, the ending there, the retelling, and a little bit in the gossip with that ending as well, is kind of for me a little bit of the Rosetta Stone of the entire book, right? Like this idea of storytelling and how we come to be and how we we inhabit identity. So yeah, if you could speak so, to origin story. Yeah, so you texted me that the other day, Nikki, and I was like, I don't know what she means. I don't know if I know what the Rosetta Stone exactly is, but then I started thinking about it more and more, and I thought, one, like it's really, there's something funny about, I think, the fact that I tell two Bible stories in the book. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to go back and retell the Bible. Um, if not me, too. If not now, when? I don't know. Um, 
And I think telling the Bible in the voice of sort of the girl, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, like, you know, yeah, oh, I, with those, with likes, with those, with a sort of girlish voice, um, felt really intentional because I think that that's a voice that we have been. And this is something you and I have discussed, Nikki, too. But like, that's a voice that we've been taught isn't an acceptable voice to tell stories with, isn't right. a voice of authority. And so it felt really important to me to sort of tell these very important stories using that voice. Um, and I think what you're talking about at the end is really that it's a story of how. God vanquishes mother nature. And I guess what I was thinking about is it's sort of a story that comes before the Bible. Cause all we have, like the origin stories we have are like the Bible and Darwin. And both right. of them really naturalize right. capitalist hierarchy, patriarchy, slavery, um, and really diminish like our connection to the planet, each other, women, people of color, I don't know. Um, yeah. Basically, it's like because of the origin stories that we have, our planet is dying as a result, right? And so it's like, how can we have new origin stories? And maybe they're, you know, so it's like God represents the ultimate patriarch. God represents this logic um, of, and I mean, I'm thinking about like the Christian right too, that I mean, not saying like the actual God or spirit, but right. like what God has become is sort of this um, warmonger, this enslaver, this like kill the planet, right? Um, right? And so, yeah, I like that there could be this other force, which they call Mother Nature, that's all like all the streams and the muds and the mountains um, who only exist like in a very death croaky way still. Right. I mean, one of, yeah. I, uh, yes, yes. And one of the other things that um, maybe you did, you're addressing, but maybe I just want to bring up is like one of the things I love about those two particular stories is also the idea of filling in the blanks or retelling the story so many times that it changes according to whoever's telling it, which I really love because then we can put into context like how like the agendas of different, different monoliths, different patriarchies at different points in time in history have altered our kind of our planet, our, our place on the earth and how we can trace that all back to storytelling. And like you said, if we put it back into kind of like the voice of a young woman or a girl or mother nature or whatever you want to call it, like there is a hope in your book. I feel like a hope, like, especially in becoming trees where she's like, we have to get out of here. And she's like, you know, just, we have to do the work kind of. So I thought there was this really mm -hmm. beautiful thread of hope in the book too, that like, Salvation will be through like, not like demolishing God, but um, kind of like reinvigorating the idea that things aren't set in stone, right? That like, we can change, we can become, there are like, there is like, you know, and to use Munoz's term, there is queer possibility, you know? And um, yeah. It yeah, what is that Munoz, that line from the first page of Munoz? It's like, we want a new world. We want, we demand a new world. Like, yeah. I don't have it in front of me, but yes, yes. And I felt like this book was very much like demanding that world and demanding it through the voice of um, the protagonist we wouldn't normally associate with having like the gospel, right? Like young women, like the exact people in society that we have kind of been taught to, 
um, infantilize or ignore or diminish their voices. Would you agree or no? Or can you expand on that? No. <laughs> yeah, of course I agree. Also, if you know the Jose Munoz quote, you can type it in the chat. Um, yeah, yeah, tell us, educate us. Um, um, yeah, I think it's very much about there's a there's a strong belief I think that the that the right stories can still be found or you know even if even if the planet is going to die and turn into like the purple epoch thing at the end of the book that like it's it's a worthy attempt to try to get there but that um, you know and yeah um, I had someone say that they hear Mother Nature's voice through eating mushrooms from the ground. And I think someone told me they experienced that as a drug trip and that's fine, it could be that. But I think just mushrooms are really powerful communicators. There's, you know, I think that there are ways to listen to the stories of the earth too. And I think that's in this book too. Absolutely, but yeah. Really, yeah, I think all of the stories from all of the different kinds of voices that have been suppressed by yeah. the patriarchal winner of the contest. Um, oh. Ugh, so depressing. But um, that's the book, The Oppressive Voice of the Patriarchy. Um, you brought up a really great point that I loved about the book, too, was the role of nature and the role, like, the way that the characters, like, ingest, like, vegetables and kombucha squash and, you know, like, really, like, the trees and the soil and how they have sex when they're becoming trees and this, you know, this idea in the, um, in the first Sarah of, like, you know, orgasming in the desert and like eating figs and this whole thing which enrolling in flowers I just loved that so much and then it felt like so so the pivot from that to still finding beauty in the purple epic was almost shocking to me where I was like this is a book that was so invested in like the earth and the sensual to go into this place where like even in something that doesn't resemble what now in the mind of the author or you, the protagonist, is like this earthy, yummy thing, we can still have this like beautiful moment of like utopia, you know? And I thought that that was a really powerful story too about socialization because, right, like that character doesn't know anything except what it's born into, right? The, the final character. And um, I wanted, this is going to segue into my, my next question and then I will stop talking which reminds me that this book is also, and I thought that it would be a great opportunity to bring this up because I feel like maybe you won't talk about this with your other host is, it is kind of, it's it's a, a dark horse is sort of also really beautiful, like kind of walk through like the subcultures of queer Los Angeles. It's also kind of an LA book. Do you find that to be true? Yes, we got the Munoz quote. We can read it maybe in a little oh. bit. But um, yeah, I think it's an LA book. I think a few of the different stories are in LA. Um, and I mean, I think we've talked about this before because you've always felt like I'm secretly native to LA or native to LA in my soul or something. Yes, um, it was <laughs> when I arrived here, it felt really immediately like a homecoming. And I think a lot of that is about the sort of possibility for transformation that exists here, the willingness to believe that people have here. Like when I was in New York, people were very cynical and serious for me, right? And I don't know. Um, and here there was kind of an openness and a way that people believed that they could um, remake the world around them. I mean, 
there LA has changed a lot since then, but um, that was at least like a lot of my initial experience of LA. And I mean, I think that that attitude still persists. And so I think that my ability to even think about multiple identities, multiple stories, um, how the world ends kind of stems from LA. And as, um, as yeah has been pointed out to me it's like there's like chicate in the book chicate is the bomb yeah and continue or was yeah i mean that was said to me from someone who was like i don't know like does you know does tegan know what chicate is do those other sarahs know it right but like chicate is in la and it's like the la's i don't know just that there are sort of just the um Not but chips from superior were in the book oh amazing that is very superior chips they're not called superior chips but i knew that they were chips from superior <laughs> <laughs> but um you brought up kind of what i didn't want to say for you i've been trying to let you say the things that i'm thinking in my head but yes i feel like this book could not this these characters so many of these characters could not have possessed this sort of like this willingness to sort of take on these new identities or look for these new um, alternative endings or these alternative stories if they hadn't had this sort of LA framework in which to work from, right? Everything from like a river that's been cemented and how you describe in gemstones, how they go around the river. It's, it's, um, oh, sorry. <laughs> well, anyway, yeah, so much of this, I feel like is such a good representation of, um, of Los Angeles and also LA's history of being like a place where people come to reinvent themselves, but also of mysticism, right? Like everything from, um, you know, witchcraft to like all this. Anyway, uh, cults. Why don't why why don't you read the quote, Sam? Unless you want me to read it, Marta. Uh, I'll read the quote. I'll read Marta Bells because it is shorter. Okay, She's great. Queerness is essentially about the rejection of a here and now and an insistence on the potentiality or concrete possibility of another world. And the queerness is not yet here. That's actually in the book. book right. Put another way, we're not yet queer. This is from Yvonne. But we can feel it as the warm illumination of a horizon imbued with potentiality. We've never been queer, yet queerness exists for us as an ideality that can be distilled from the past and used to imagine a future. Yeah, that's so, that's so awesome. Um, yeah, so uh, I also wanted to bring up, um, again, this is so interesting, yeah, uh, happenstances in life. You know, I was reading this while I'm teaching, like I said, this coming of age class. And um, I know this isn't qualified, or this isn't like being called a coming of age novel, but, or book rather, sorry, book short stories, but there is so much coming of age in it, even for characters who are of age. Would you agree? Yeah, and I think that that's something that is very much in conversation with sort of other queer fiction. Um, and theory too. I mean, I think I went to like a queer, um, a, like perpetual adolescence panel that um, Megan hosted, who's here. Um, and uh, <laughs> and there's sort of, um, I think people have noticed sort of this trend, but it's definitely true in the book that there's sort of like not an adulthood for queer people to grow into and that's maybe increasingly available but this is not like a please accept me queer book it's like a, we need to remake the world queer right. book and so there aren't sort of um there aren't sort of clear I think 
iterations of adulthood, if adulthood is contingent on marriage and children and all of those um, kinds of things. And so I do think that there's a way that a lot of queer people are coming of age forever. Are, um, all the teenage Sarahs, right? Until she finds the horse. Yeah, but she, like she left the horse for now and you know, she's just going to keep. That's true. She's going to go to that karaoke Chinese restaurant in, in North Dakota. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, but I mean, this is just how I read it. And of course, it doesn't belong to you anymore. You put it into the world, Sam. But um, I, I'm not. I'm, but how I read it, for me, that scene was like, she found the horse and now she can. I mean, I don't want to start crying again, that damn horse. But like, she found the horse. We should leave the horses aside. <laughs> leave the horse alone. Okay. But now she can be who she is, right? She recognized something in the horse. She can let it go. She can leave it behind her. Like this thing she was searching for. Yeah. I don't want to I don't want to expand on or change your read because it means so much to you. Because I cried, maybe. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. We can talk about another story. Um, but yeah, okay, I have a question for you because I'm how are we on time? Are we okay on time? Yeah, I think that um, she'll pop back when it's... Oh, great. Okay, fantastic. So um, I wanted to ask, what is something, now that you've been doing a little bit of, like you've done a few like press things and interviews, what are, or in reading of some reviews and such, what is something that um, people are not seeing or that you are surprised that people aren't picking up from the book or, or something that you were hoping the book would be more evident or something that you thought was really evident in the book that you're surprised isn't being talked about more or is there any or is or is that not a thing is every everything being like fully grasped? yeah i'm gonna say that it's like maybe almost the opposite is true where i'm like whoa people are um really good readers of this book and really generous readers and have pointed things out that maybe i hadn't exactly thought about um so i don't know i i guess i just haven't had that experience of like, oh, they're missing the point, which is really great. Um, do you want to go back? Because you talked about twinning. I'm going to name. Oh, 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 I thought you were thinking. I thought you were thinking. No, I have more questions. Okay. But do you want to? Oh, I thought you were thinking. Like, because sometimes you do a thing where you think and then you speak. I you know, know. That's true. No, I wasn't sure if you were. I didn't want to talk over you. Um, I would love to talk about twinning um, and or if you like, I am also interested in that you look very, very beautiful tonight, Sam. You look really pretty with your hair like that, like all sides. Um, <laughs> I was also interested in um, in um, the the commonality, and I guess this is also twenty. That um, your book reminded me a lot of uh, Blood and Guts in high school. The, the scene where Janie dies and Acker writes, and then more Janies came, and Janies covered the earth, and Janies like the birds sang to the Janies, and the doves cooed, and Janie continued, and um, or something like that. I'm getting the quote mixed up, but this idea that like even there is like she is she is both the Sarahs are and are not individuals, right? Like in some ways they are they are singular, they are and are not both singular, right? And I wanted to know if you could talk that a little bit about like sort of like, yes, the gendered femme experience of being like a young girl or a young woman coming of age and how. Yeah. In the book. 
<laughs> yeah, so I love that you made that connection, Nikki, um, because I do think that like this book wouldn't exist without Blood and Guts in high school in a lot of ways. And I do think that that's one of the sort of primary things that blew my mind about that book was that um, Janie was a specific person and also Janie was no one and also Janie was all the girls. Um, and then it's like her, you know, her dad and boyfriend and like, I don't know, like a million kinds of relationships are all the same person, right? And it's like all of these archetypes are so flattened and yet there's so much emotion that comes through. And something about that to me really gets it some of the experience of girlhood where, I don't know, we dedicated this in part to Britney Spears. We can talk about Britney, Britney. too and say, Brittany has made me, it was so cathartic for me because I mean, I was like having this experience by myself um, as a teenager, just watching Britney Spears and being like, this is crazy that they're telling us that we have to be this one thing. And then they're punishing us for being the one thing that they said that we could be. And so yeah. in a way, like all we can be is Janie Smith or Sarah. We'll end that here. Yeah. Hi, Emily. <laughs> Sorry, I had muted myself. Um, yeah, we have, if you, Nikki, if you want to ask one more question, then we'll get to the questions down there at the bottom. But I just want to um, come back in and free Brittany out. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Sam, just, uh, I feel like maybe you had more to say on that. You want to finish your thought about Janie and, and the, what we were just talking about? Um, I don't know. Just that the, like, the flatness of her and the interchangeability of her was really cool. And, I think for me had something to do with what it feels like, what it felt like to be a girl. And it was such an interesting way to write about um, the girl. And I think the Sarahs are like a little more fleshed out and differentiated, but the, I think that that concept is um, still there. Okay, great. I, I think that's, I think that's great. It's so, Sam, it's so good. Congratulations. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. I love it. Thank you for letting me uh, the evening with you. Thank you for spending the evening with me. Anytime. We've driven over mountains in the middle of the night with no lights. <laughs> <laughs> Terrifying. Um, thank you guys so much. That was such a wonderful conversation. It was so great to see two, I always love seeing lifelong, long time friends talking about writing. It's so, so personal. Um, and yeah, so we have some questions here from the audience. So I'm gonna start here with the first one from Shelby. Um, and it says, how did the Sarah concept come to you and how did you decide to tie it all together in a book? That's a great question. Um, so there's a bunch of different answers to this question. Um, I think an idea has to hit me like 10 different ways before I decide to do it. Um, and so one answer is that I wrote two of the stories first and one the characters were named Tegan and Sarah and it was this story about twinning and obsession and then the other one was all the teenage Sarahs where Sarah keeps transforming into different Sarahs from pop culture and because I had and, and so I had those two and I thought like there's something here that really connects them I could see a lot of threads between the two of them and they felt different from anything I had done and then I kind of worried that um I couldn't get rid of the name Sarah in either of them. And it seemed like a problem to have a story collection with 
um, characters with the same name, but then I thought like maybe the name Sarah could be a constraint um, to actually generate a collection. And then, I mean, the other thing is that um, I remembered that a long time ago um, when I very first started writing Sarah it was just always my avatar name. Um, like when I was sort of like writing um, failed autobiography, it was always sort of about a Sarah. Um, and I think that people actually heard my name as Sarah in real life because I was a lot more um, shy and withdrawn and I think like anonymous feeling. And I would say my name's Kylie and be like, I'm Sarah. And they'd be like, hi, Sarah. Um, that's my answer. And how did they all come together? Um, that was very collaborative with my amazing editor, Maddie Caldwell, who is also here. And I think she really helped me see sort of like all of the interconnected threads of how these pieces actually formed um, a whole. I love that. Um, next up, we have a question from David Gilbert and he asks, Sam, can you talk about us about using humor in your writing? The book is so funny and sometimes funny things about simultaneously horrific things. Thank you, David Gilbert. Hi. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I love that observation and it does feel important to me. I mean, something that I really want to create is to kind of, kind of trick the reader into thinking that this is all really light and really funny until they're kind of like punched in the gut. Um, that is, that is something that I sort of consciously want as a feeling. Um, and I don't know, I remember someone else who writes funny work asking me if I ever feel like my work is taken too lightly because it's funny or people don't take it seriously. But I think that for me, there's always like, like the seed of the work is always something really serious. Um, and then, I don't know, I think it's just something about who I am and the voices that I like to use um, that maybe, yeah, I mean, maybe it's just about facing like the seriousness with seriousness head on um, would feel like too much. And so um, the humor comes as a way, I think, to be able to tell the story. But thank you, I'm, I'm glad you think it's funny. Yeah, that's a that's a great answer. I think, I mean, I've I'm so excited to read the book and just even in that first um, excerpt that you shared, I was so struck by like, I think there's something too about like femininity and expression of like humor with it. Cause it's either it's usually that it has to go too far and too serious, or that it's like a complete joke. So I love when there's the ability to like combine those two. Thank you, absolutely. And yeah, I do think that that's a commitment of mine too, is yeah, like I was saying to Nikki, really writing in the voice of the girl and insisting on this kind of um, voice that might get taken lightly as able to tell um, important stories. Definitely. Um, all right, and then Gabriella Burnham asks, which Sarah do you feel closest to? Hi, Gabby. Um, which Sarah do I feel close to? I mean, oh my God. Um, I mean, I think all of them in different 
on different days and different times and different ways. I mean, they all came from me for from me for a very like deep personal important reason. Sorry, but that's not a great answer. Perfect answer. Yeah, okay. <laughs> great answer. Uh, Jamie wants to know what could or should young queer women teens and 20s take away from your book? I don't know, Jamie. Jamie is their name? Mm-hmm. Um, um, what should queer women take away from my book? I mean, I don't know. I hate giving people takeaways because I just, I want everyone to have their own experience. Like, I think that Nikki's experience with the end of the book was so beautiful and it's like not what I would, how I would describe it or what I would think. But it's like, I want her to have that because it's hers. I mean, I do think that, you know, I'm not a good like advice giver for young queer women. Um, but but I guess I would say like, yeah, your stories are important. I also think that there's like something that I do want people to kind of like take away from the book that only got asked once to answer also part of your question, Nikki, um, is that like, I think that there is like a real thread in the book of the power of queer sex to remake the world. Mm -hmm. um, so tell your stories and have queer sex. <laughs> I, I have a quick question just to piggy off that. What would like 20 year old you take away from this then? If you are like, I kind of feel like you're always like, kind of speaking to that person. So I'm just curious. That's, that's a nice question. I mean, I think that it would be like, follow your path. It's okay to leave like the only stories or the only ways of being that you know. And it's, I mean, trust your gut like listen to your core go in the direction that you want to go confidently it's okay to not know everything yet it's okay to not have a plan it's okay to not know where you're going to land and actually just follow um follow desire right i think that a lot of the book is about that too about like all of the ways that um women and girls desire is suppressed and it's like following desire might be the best way to make decisions Yes, amazing, absolutely. Um, all right, we have another question here. Um, it says, Sam, what is the experience of embodying real people in fiction like? Do you have to create a new character on top of the celebrity or real person to move around on the page? Um, who asked that question, didn't they? Way. Way, hi, Way. <laughs> Okay. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that the celebrities are such avatars. I mean, they're not represented super deeply. So, I mean, something that Way and I were at McDowell together um, and something that I was kind of doing while we were there was leafing through all of Sarah Schulman's books, all of like her old books from the 80s to just kind of like steal lines to put them in her mouth and say her say, make her say this dialogue. But almost all of the celebrities in the book, I think, are kind of functioning like that as kind of dolls. A lot of them actually, I think almost all of their dialogue comes from either clips I found of um, video, um, like talks or interviews or fictional shows, or it comes from... Um, or it comes from their books. Great, it's amazing. I love that. I love doing the, like a YouTube whole research for writing. 
that's a good way to go about it, I think. Um, all right, I think we have time for a couple more questions. And if you still have questions, feel free to get them in, you guys. Um, let's see. Avadon Arcade asks, was there, uh, was there a story you ever felt could have grown into its own larger standalone novel? Yeah, I honestly think that probably most of them could. <laughs> Um, I think that I think that a lot of I mean some of them I think are very contained but I think some of them kind of stop and they could be mined further um, and yeah I'm probably I'm probably not gonna do that um, but <laughs> I, think that, <laughs> I think that there are probably like a few that I could have really um, stuck with and then it's like i mean uh, all the teenage sarah's is sort of like a recap of the whole book in a way like almost like a retelling with a twist at the end and i mean i think that like that is told so fast like boom 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 that i mean it definitely it's like this this book could have been a novel i think and also to put it in the context of your coming of age class hi nikki's coming of age class um I mean, I think that it is a coming of age book. I think it's a book where like, instead of being a novel where there's like a clear arc to personhood and this person is like integrated into society at the end, it's like this constant death and rebirth, constant transformation, constant failing to come of age really. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, the, I think the book could have been told a really different way. It'd be a different book. Yeah. Similarly, so our last question of the evening, I guess, then is from Jean Ho, and she asks, how did you choose the order for the stories, or how did you and your editor work together to find the order for the stories? Yeah, so um, I definitely think that Maddie really had, like, this, I don't know, I was, like, looking at, I was looking at, like, a table with a bunch of, like, jigsaw puzzle pieces on it, um, and Maddie was like, I, th like, these are already jigsaw pieces. They fit together. It's like, a, it's an arc, it's a thing. Um, and I just wasn't seeing that for a while. So definitely like Maddie's vision helped all of those pieces come into place. And then, I mean, it's, this never came up in our conversation, but I realized like a lot of it is sort of chronological by age um that it actually is someone kind of like it could be seen as someone kind of getting older with like some interruptions and some disruptions to that flow um but yeah the first three stories are sarah's who are kind of locked in their milieus trying kind of trying to get out kind of creating um toxic i mean the first sarah as you guys heard is kind of very trapped um and then the second two sarah's are kind of creating sort of toxic dynamics as they're trying to kind of free themselves of the stories that they have learned. And then the next story, it's like Sarah basically sort of like has this sexual experience with the dream world and the universe and like narrative is undone and she comes out of that. And then we start to kind of revisit origin stories and sort of start to move into um, a little bit more adult stories, a little bit more, um, a little bit more questions of community rather than individual identity. That's awesome. Well, thank you guys both so much. This was so amazing. I'm so glad we could host you this evening for the release of Sarah Land. 
congrats to Sam. And then thank you so much to Nikki for joining us. Um, you can purchase Sarah Land via that button right there or on the Skylight website. Or if you want to come visit us in person, we are open. Um, yes. And you can also find Nikki Darling's book, Fade Into You, there as well. Um, yeah thank you guys so much for sharing with us it was such a great conversation and if you guys want to revisit this at any time this event will be archived here on this page forever so that's fun all right thank you guys have a great night thank you for listening to the skylight books podcast series please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on twitter and instagram Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.